This morning, I decided to switch things up a little bit. Last week, if you remember, I talked. we talked about Pilate and asking the question, what is truth? And we talked about how truth is from the scriptures, but yet most of the world chooses to exchange that truth for a lie. And so, and I quoted Judges, how in the book of Judges, constantly over and over, you have this idea of each one turned to his own way. What they saw was was right, and they turned to that instead of the Lord. And so I thought it appropriate this week to actually take a break from the New Testament gospel and maybe look at a passage from the book of Judges, which is not often preached on. And so we'll be in Judges chapter 3. If you want to go ahead and turn there, I'm going to pray for us so that we can... Um, open his word and learn from it and be convicted. So let's let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, even here in the Old Testament, back in the book of Judges, this is your word and it is about you. And so help us to see it as that. And it being about you, it means that it is about our salvation. It is about our sin and need of a Savior. It is about the things that we turn to other than you. And so, Lord, help us, convict us of our sin, convict us of our idolatry, those times that we turn away from you and turn to other gods. Fix our hearts on you. Teach us from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so before I begin this sermon, I need to give credit to uh, pastor, teacher, uh, Dr. Ralph Davis, Old Testament scholar and a resident minister at one of our own ARP churches in Columbia, South Carolina incredible commentator of God's Word and man after God and um, just taught me so much concerning the Old Testament narratives and has a book on a commentary on the book of Judges called Such a Great Salvation. It's a great read. It's, it's not just for ministers, but anyone would enjoy it. And so we're going to be in the book of Judges chapter 3, particularly looking at the story of Ehud in verses 12 through 31. And Judges like the rest of the Old Testament, is filled with all of these interesting stories. But I think in the book of Judges, however, we get some very earthy kind of stories. And this is one of the most earthy stories in the book of Judges. One commentator said of this story that by even the most elementary standard of ethics, Ehud's deception and murder of Eglon still stands condemned. Passages like this, when encountered by the untutored reader of Scripture, cause consternation and questioning. It's an interesting way to think about that. So granted, stories like this bother some people. We gladly accept stories like David and Goliath in our Sunday school classes, which is also about someone being killed. And we have the little flannel graphs. I remember those growing up like it was yesterday. I learned so much from flannel graphs. I think sometimes I see Bible stories as flannel graphs in my head. But you won't see a flannel graph of Eglon and Ehud, ever. It just wouldn't be right. And so how do people typically deal with a story? They'll, they'll you know, Ehud stabs Eglon, so they'll still allegorize the story. They'll say that he really stabbed Ehud, or Eglon, with the sword of the spirit. I'm sure Eglon wished it had been a spiritual sword, sword in his stomach that day. Moralism, don't be like Ehud, don't be hasty or quick to anger, or self-righteously, can you believe Israel? Why couldn't they just do better or try harder? Then God would have really blessed them, 
We like to look at these passages like that sometimes. But remember, all Scripture is from God, and therefore, this story, like the rest of Scripture, points to the Savior, Jesus Christ. So our goal in examining this is to see Jesus. We're going to do that through two points. First, we're going to look at the theme, the redemptive theme of the story, and then we'll see the tragedy of this story. So as we go to the text, let's stand together. Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 31. I'll go ahead and read verse 31, which is a one-story, one-verse story about another judge, just because it's cool. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute to him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull out the sword of his belt from his belly, and the dung came out. When Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors, or then Ehud went out from the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they had saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet in the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when they still did not open the roof, but they, when they, when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and lay their lord, and, and there lay their lord dead on the floor. He had escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syria. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for eighty years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed six hundred of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. 
Amen. This is God's Word. You can be seated. So when I first read this story, it made me think of what Easter Sunday was like at my house growing up and what Easter Sunday is at a lot of our houses. You know, you have, you, my mom would always buy us an Easter outfit and, uh, we would get dressed up in our nice Easter outfit and they all matched, all three of us, me, my brother and sister, we were all matching kids. And that's not real, if you know us, that's not really us. But for some reason, mom would dress us that way. So, of course, my brother and I decided that before church, after we put on our Easter clothes, we would go out and play in the ditch uh, beside our house that uh, had mud and uh, other things in it. And uh, we, of course, covered our brand new clothes and had uh, the mud all over us and the other things all over us. And my mom took a picture of that, and uh, we, we, ha- we still have laughs about that today. Easter's, as a matter of fact, are notorious in my family for being very interesting. One, one Easter, I took, put my clothes on, and then I went and strolled down the road to this old abandoned house where I quickly stepped on a nail that went all the way through the top of my foot. And so we we uh, call that tetanus Easter because I went and got a shot instead of going to church that day. Um, so both times, the only thing my mom could do was just laugh. It's entertaining. We know the way Easter Sunday is supposed to go, right? It's supposed to be this really elaborate show, new matching clothes and that sort of thing. We put our best on. We have our serious Christ is risen faces on. We have our best meal in the oven or in the crock pot. We look around, everyone makes sure they're not paying attention to the imperfections in our demeanor, our dress. We forget the joviality of the occasion. Christ is risen. It's a party, but yet we make it a show. Sometimes I think for this story and for stories like it, we can try to say the same thing. We can come to stories like this in Scripture, and we are oftentimes, I think, too serious about them. And I think it may help us to take our dress shoes off, as it were, and to put on the sandals of an Israelite. Consider what they're going through during this time. Persecuted by this man named Eglon for 18 years, where these the Moabites and the Amalekites had come in and defeated Israel. It says they took possession of the city of Palms, and they served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. And if you know Israel's story leading up to this, what were they told? Go and destroy all these people and you will inherit the land. And then when we get to the book of Judges, we see that they're unable to do that. And they start regressing and they start losing battles. And all of a sudden, the Lord has to appoint these judges to save them. And over and over again, they turn to their idols and they get taken over by some thug like Eglon. And so here they are, they're eking out this menial existence under the oppressive government of Eglon. And then it says that the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. I love that. It's interesting seeing that the word Benjamin in Hebrew means people of God's right hand. And so you kind of get this little play in in the Hebrew text there that we don't see in the English. And so here's this man, Ehud. He fashions a knife 
He tapes it to his right thigh where they would never check because most people aren't left-handed. And he sneaks in, manages to get Eglon all alone. And we hear that Eglon is on the roof chamber and, and cooling himself, which is kind of a euphemism for he's up there using the restroom. And for whatever reason, Eglon believes this ruse. He's so excited about hearing this secret message from one of his oppressed uh, Hebrew folk. And he stabs him. Ehud stabs him in the stomach. So much so that the dagger we hear disappears. And then while his servants are, I love the text here, it says that they're too embarrassed to go into the bathroom and check on Eglon. And so what happens? Ehud makes his escape, rallies the troops, and they destroy their oppressors. And so reading this, rather than coming to it very seriously, I think sometimes we need to look at this through the eyes of an Israelite. What would they do if they were reading this? They would probably think it was pretty hilarious. It's quite comical that God would use the weak things of the world. A left-handed man named Ehud with a homemade knife sneaking into the palace. He uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The small things of the world to crush the big things, literally, big Eglon. However, what do we read in the New Testament? This is his way, isn't it? This is what he said in Corinthians. This is the way that he works all throughout Scripture. This is the way he's still working, right? And so as we, I think, poke and pick at stories like this, and, and if, if you read some of the critical commentaries on stories like this, they wish they weren't even in the, the Bible because they're kind of hard for us to figure out. Was Ehud a bad man? Was, you know, and, and all these different stories, and we don't need to worry about that. I think we don't need to forget the joviality, the, the happiness of what's going on, the victory that Israel received, the victory that indeed we have in Jesus Christ. And I think another point here is it's good for us to see that God doesn't wear white and gloves. Again, just as my brother and I stood there in the front door covered in mud and whatever else we were covered in, we were still loved. My mom took a picture of us rather than destroying us, which I'm sure she felt like doing. God loves us in the midst of whatever is going on with us. And so it goes to think about how we feel this morning even, or how we know people who are struggling. You know, we, sometimes we feel like we're dressed in our best, but we really, we, we, we are dressed in our best, but we really feel like we're covered in mud. Or our lives are going much like the Israelites. We feel like we're living under oppression, some sort of uncontrollable situation, or somebody in our lives some sort of emotional trauma that we can't get out from under. We know people that are going through this. I know we all do. We feel trapped. We feel surrounded by this guilt and this shame. Or it could just be a simple thing that most and all Christians struggle with, just being in the clutches of temptation, whatever that temptation is. And we feel ashamed to even talk about it with one another. We don't want to struggle with one another. We want to hide that because we would not. We think that if other people knew, maybe we wouldn't be accepted anymore. We couldn't go on. I mean, just just think about this in our own heads. Think about the people that we know, the things that are they're going through. Think about what's going on in the world today. 
The world is a twisted place. Sickness and death have seemingly taken hold over the world. Oppression is real in some places. Eglon seems like a, a little guy compared to what's going on in some places in the world. But the good news is, for us, that God isn't a God who wears white gloves and refuses to get mixed up in the lives of his children. He gets right into the lives of his children. And think about how he came into this world. He came to earth as a baby, born in a cave probably, laid in a feeding trough, right in the middle of our lives. So don't think for a minute that, that our lives, no matter how twisted and corrupt the things are around us, the things are in our brains, whatever is going on, that no matter how hard and how insurmountable things may seem sometimes, don't think for a minute that he isn't right there with us. What did Jesus tell us? I am with you always, even until the end of the world. He's right there saying, what does he say in Matthew chapter 11? Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You really see that, I think, here in this picture. You see that as you read the book of Judges. The people of Israel, because of their own stupidity, were weary and heavy laden, and God continues to come to give them rest. In this case, 80 years of it. God delights in delivering his own people, no matter what their mess is. And no matter if the mess is caused by them, which is, what, most of the time for us, right? The Israelites and many of us do that, that same thing. He delights in our redemption. And I think that's a really good thing for us, because we are desperate for it. And that brings us to the second point, is the tragedy of this story. Ehud... Look at verse 30. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. 80 years is a long time. I have no idea of knowing how long that is, actually. I, I haven't even lived half of that yet. And so Ehud saved his people for 80 years. But look at chapter 4, verse 1, quickly. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So after Ehud died, the Israelites again did evil in the sight of the Lord. We have this short interlude there in 31 with, with Shamgar, the amazing ox-wielding mega-soldier who kills 800 or 600 people. He also saved Israel is what we hear which is fascinating because Shamgar wasn't even an Israelite. Um, the Lord chooses to use the strangest people sometimes. But Ehud died. His influence was far-reaching. He, he like rallied the troops, and they all attacked, and they won the day. He saved their people, his people, from immediate persecution. But did this left-handed Savior really save anyone? In one sense, yes, he saved them for a time. They experienced this 80 years of rest. But what did the people of Israel do? They soon forgot. They soon forgot what it felt like to be persecuted, and they turned to other things. They turned to other saviors. Though their physical slavery had ended, they were still slaves to sin. They continually turned back 
to the gods of their oppressors. Imagine that. They were oppressed by the Moabites, the Amalekites, and whose gods do they turn to after 80 years? They turn back to those idols. Even though it was, even though they had a God who raised up men like Moses and Aaron in the past and was raising up like Ehud, men like Ehud and Shamgar and others and Gideon throughout the book of Judges in their present, they wanted the idols more. That's crazy. It's almost as if they're kind of locked in to this pattern. A story from a Christmas when I received a new three-wheeler. If you know what three-wheelers are, they were kind of the precursors of four-wheelers. And they were dangerous because they only had one wheel in the front and they could flip over on you. So, of course, my parents bought all three of us one. And uh, I wasn't... Um, very good at things like that. My brother was always the one that wasn't afraid to do anything, you know, but I was always a very cautious person. And, um, so I get on this new three wheeler and about the only thing I'd ever ridden was like a riding lawnmower. So again, I just was taking it really slow and there was like four inches of snow on the ground and it was kind of the iced over snow. And so here I am riding down this old farm road, dirt road with the ditch on either side. And I get caught in this rut and I don't know what to do, so I just follow the rut into the ditch. Within like the first 10 minutes of me riding this new thing, and of course I flip over the front of it, because three-wheelers are dangerous. And I never wanted to get on it again, but of course I did, like 20 minutes later. So, I think it's funny, I got caught in this rut, I knew the way that I should be going, there's my brother and my dad, they're going this way, but yet I get caught in this rut, and I was paralyzed, so I didn't know what to do, I was afraid, I couldn't turn. And I went right into this ditch. And I think for Israel, they probably seemed like the same thing. It probably seems like very much the same thing. They lived in the time in Egypt during the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. And these things were just a few hundred years ago. Much like us telling the stories of like the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. These things weren't long ago. When God did what he did at Jericho, think about it, the, the whole city just being crushed, they could probably still go see the ruins of Jericho, which is crazy. What they did at the city of Ai, where they drew the town out and they crushed them. Even closer, the fact that God had risen up these men to protect and rule his people was a testament of his love to them. They didn't deserve that. But he did it for them. Yet all the while, Israel longed for the idols of their oppressors, just as they longed for return to Egypt when they wandered in the wilderness. Think about how we're similar. You know, are we saying that we're primitive idol worshippers like those in Israel? We're God's people, right? Are we, are we primitive idol worship, worshippers? Well, Israel was God's people. We can have hundreds of verses memorized. We can outline the entire New Testament, maybe have the shorter catechism completely internalized. But without Christ, we are slaves to sin. Without Christ, we are the epitome of Paul's words in Romans 3. All of us under sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All of us have turned away. All of us have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And so we need to remember 
What is it that we are looking for to salvation? Sure, we're looking to Jesus. But in those times when we're struggling with temptation, in those times when we're struggling with sin and doubt, what is it that we're looking to? Do we have these periods of rest in our life? Maybe not 80 years, but maybe we have a few years of real good rest and good relationship with the Lord, and then we have this time of struggle. What is it that we are turning to other than our Lord Jesus? Are we looking to the acceptance of others? Are we looking to ourself? He who had delivered his people, but he too needed deliverance. And so what is it that we're looking to? I think oftentimes we can idolize people, we can idolize things. Are we looking towards our own good works? Perhaps we think the ticket to salvation is actually just being the best person we can. We know better. We, we know better, but we still forget. Many of us will say, I mean, think about Matthew 10, many of, or 7. Lord, Lord, did we not drive out demons and perform many miracles? And Jesus says, I will tell you plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. And so these saviors and judges, just like Moses and Joshua and all the saviors that came before and after, these temporary saviors of Israel, all looked forward to the real one who could save all his people, Jesus Christ. We don't have a left-handed Savior like Ehud, who is real, really no Savior at all. We have our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of his people. And so this is an incredible story that we have, brothers and sisters. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter one. Verses twenty six through thirty one. And I think Paul lays this out great for us here, helping us to consider our own salvation and this incredible story that we have. First Corinthians one twenty six through thirty one. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Isn't it incredible that the Lord uses the ehuds of the world to shame the Eglons. It's incredible that he would send and send this ruler into, or this this man, this Ehud, into the throne room, throne room of the most powerful ruler and the most powerful at the time 
and demand his people be set free, and he did so with a knife. But think about what he did just previous, several hundred years ago. He sent an 80-year-old, as in Moses, into the throne room of the most powerful ruler in the world, the Pharaoh, and he demanded his people be set free. Who does the Lord use? He uses who he will, because the power of salvation is in him. It's amazing that he himself would come, not riding on a war horse with a sword held high, but as a baby, born to a carpenter and a very young woman. And when he came, he lived in our world, a vile and corrupted place, setting himself under a tyrannical government, knowing full well that they would one day kill him. Why? Because he delights in redemption. He delights in his people, and he delights in their salvation. He chose us while we were weak. He chose us while we were not wise. We were nothing, and yet he used us to shame the strong of the world. In Jesus, we are able to boast in him, not in ourselves. There's, we have nothing to boast about. It says, so it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so what's the call for us this morning? I think the call for us this morning is to remember our salvation. To come to Jesus. To not carry the burden that we're carrying, whatever it is. His burden is light. We should stop trying to save ourselves. Which any sin, brothers and sisters, is an attempt to rewrite his law and to save ourselves with it. We should attempt to, or we should stop doing this. We should experience the rest, the freedom that he has for us. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus. Or you have questions about what it means. Let's talk about it. Scripture says that we need only believe in the Lord Jesus and we'll be saved. So he wants to save each one of us. Even as Christians, he wants us to remember that he is our Redeemer. And so brothers and sisters in Christ and unbelievers alike, call upon the name of the Lord, be saved. Remember your Redeemer, your Savior, our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to remember our salvation, such a great salvation that we have. Even in this story of Ehud and Eglon and the people of Israel being oppressed, we can see a pattern for redemption. We can see our Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to this world to save his people. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that, that you would show us anew the gift of salvation that we have, the joy that we can have because of your resurrection. Help us to experience that joy every day. It's in your name we pray. Amen.